it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, October 21st, 2022. Happy Friday and welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Very happy to have all of you here every day between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't listen live on our app or the live stream or our great affiliates all across the country or our partners at odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com, many ways to listen live, available at GuyBensonShow.com. That's the easy stop for all of it. But if you can't do it live, you can't do the whole show as we air, that's fine. We have a podcast on demand, totally free every day, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. One of those great affiliates that I just mentioned is WUSX in Seaford, Delaware, right along the coast of Delaware, not far from where we are broadcasting today. We're in Rehoboth, Delaware, which is where the president is headed, of course. Another vacation to the beach for President Biden. He does it. Seemingly all the time, he'll be getting here, according to his official schedule, arriving uh, sometime in the next couple of hours here at the beach in the very nice home that he owns. So uh, that must be nice. I know things are tough for people out there, but President Biden will be enjoying himself another vacation. And maybe my hope is he will somehow catch a portion of the show. If they tune in on the radio, maybe flip on the, uh, the radio in the car in the Beast presidential limo. You can always cross your fingers and hope the president would listen to the show, little bits and pieces of it, perhaps glean some new understanding of things. You know, you never know. I won't hold my breath. Here's what we've got on tap for you on this Friday edition. Peter Ducey, our colleague at Fox News, White House correspondent. He will join us later on this hour. Joe O'Day running for U.S. Senate in Colorado. That's one of those bubble races where if a wave gets big enough next month, that one could tip the Republicans' way. And O'Day is making a real race of it. He's a very, I think, high-quality candidate. We've had him on before. We're having him on again. That's coming up in our next hour. Then Josh Krasauer will be here in our final hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. Political analyst extraordinaire. I think he's one of the very best in the business. There's a lot of windbags out there who just go running and stampeding to the conventional wisdom. And they wear their biases on their sleeves. And by the way, some of the things that I just said could apply to me sometimes, right? I'm, I'll be self-aware about it. We try to be thoughtful. We try to be intellectually honest here, uh, you know, with, with mixed success. I would say that's for you to judge. But Josh is right down the line, I would say, fair, thoughtful. He does actual reporting. I don't know what his personal politics are, which I think is a very good and refreshing thing. I'm looking forward to this conversation today with him because I want to ask, basically, does Josh agree with my overall assessment of the state of play on this Friday, the 21st of October, which I'm going to share with you right now? And my assessment, as things stand, 
is that the red wave seems to be building. It feels like this thing has taken a turn in the last couple days, at least with the data finally starting to catch up with the vibes, if you will, and sort of the feel of this cycle and certainly the fundamentals of this cycle. The fundamentals, which I preach about all the time, what the race looks like on paper nationally, have suggested, have telegraphed a good Republican night and a bad Democratic night on November the 8th, since basically since Biden took office and certainly since inflation really took off. And you've seen Republicans sort of bouncing along in some of the polls, some good, some not so good. Over the summer, there was that lull. The Democrats got all excited. They decided to go all in on the issue of abortion. Part of their problem is they're very radical on that issue, and as voters are learning about that and deprioritizing that question overall, it's not necessarily playing the way that Democrats expected it would or hoped it would. But here we are, two and a half weeks out from the election, And now there's just a lot of stuff percolating out there that leads me to believe that the likelihood of a significant red wave is up. I'm not going to declare that this is going to be a red wave. You don't count chickens before they hatch is the old saying, right? The old cliche, I think, happens to be true. I think you can make definitive predictions, then end up with egg on your face. You never know. But... You can examine the evidence in front of you and start to draw some expectations and potential conclusions. That's part of the job here. And what we're seeing is, I think, a cycle that's shaping up to look more like 2014 than 2018 for the Republicans in 14 and the Democrats in 18. Right? Four years ago, the last midterm election, there was a blue wave. Pretty big in the House. Not massive, but pretty big. Democrats won back the House. The Senate went the other direction, and there were a few different reasons for that. So it's kind of a mixed verdict, but a good night for Democrats. That was the 2018 cycle. And there's a possibility that that's how, just in reverse, it will go for Republicans this year. They'll win the House, have a pretty good night. The Senate's more, you know, not as great. Some missed opportunities. The map isn't great for them. And then we move forward with divided government and a divided Congress, right? That is a plausible scenario that could still play out in my mind. In 2014, if you remember that eight years ago, that midterm, the Republicans on paper, again, the fundamentals looked really good for the Republicans, but it wasn't really showing up in polling. And in Senate races, it was like, wow, these Republicans are really underperforming. What's going on here? Maybe they're going to sort of whiff on this thing. And then in mid to late October, boom, there was a turn. And a cascading effect, like dominoes started to fall. They netted nine Senate seats, nine, in one cycle. That's not going to happen this time. But if they could net two or three, that would be amazing. And I'd say increasingly plausible. I think Mitch McConnell would be very happy to net one. Anything on top of that is gravy, but you want to get that majority back. But could it be more? Maybe. Could be less. But I'm saying the 2014 pattern seems to be taking hold a little bit more now in 2022. And we'll see if that continues to play out. And it seems like, at least from where I sit, the reason the Democrats, one of the reasons that the Democrats are in such trouble, is they are ultimately shackled to Joe Biden, an unpopular president, 
I just saw, I think it was an Emerson poll, has Biden at 39% approval, the fourth poll this week nationally, where he's at 39%. And if that's the average, right, he's got a higher average in approval rating in, in some of these very populous blue states. In swing states, battleground states, battleground districts, that 39 approval rating could actually be high, right? He could be worse off in some of these places. And so when that's part of the national headwinds for Democrats, they can outperform Biden. They can even be really on their games and and outperform Biden's job approval. Let's say it ends up right around 40. They could outperform him by seven or eight points and still lose. That's one of the perils of having a president this unpopular. And he's unpopular for a reason across a whole host of issues on which Democrats are flailing and vulnerable, and they deserve to be both of those things, especially when Biden's out there eating ice cream saying the economy's strong as hell, when Americans look around and say, well, hell no. That's not what it's feeling like for my family. When you have one of the ranking Democrats on Capitol Hill saying that they all knew that when they voted for the $2 trillion of spending, it was going to cause inflation. So he just said that yesterday, James Clyburn, an admission, a huge admission. When that's what's out there in the atmosphere, especially with these trend lines moving the way that they are, it just has that feel of something significant, something big coming. A few more breadcrumbs on this front, looking at some of the polling and individual races, right? Because you can look at the national polling, and if you go to Real Clear Politics, the Republicans are now up almost three and a half points on the congressional, the generic ballot. Right? Even when they're tied or slightly behind on the generic ballot, Republicans tend to do pretty well. For them to be ahead, let alone by 3.4 points was the last number that I saw, uh, that is wave zone. That's just what that is. And with one exception, like the last 12 polls have Republicans ahead on that metric. And the one exception is only D plus one, and that's been a big swing away from the Democrats in an outlier poll that's sort of following the same pattern. So those are the national numbers. But in some of these individual races, you look at races that might at least conceivably be contested or close, right, or competitive. Democrats always excited about the opportunity maybe to pick off Texas and turn it blue. And Beto O'Rourke and that huge amount of money that he's got and so on and so forth. Well, University of Texas poll out today, Greg Abbott, 54, Beto O'Rourke of 43. Robert Francis O'Rourke, I should say. An 11-point lead for Greg Abbott among likely voters in Texas in this statewide poll. 54-43, Abbott over O'Rourke. Now, polls are polls. The only poll that counts is on Election Day, fine. But you start looking at movement, and when all the movement, or almost all the movement, is in one direction, that should tell you something. A lot of the race ratings that have shifted recently from the prognosticators have been moving in the Republican direction. So that Texas race, at least according to this poll, is looking more and more like a blowout, even though the Democrats, under different circumstances, might feel like they might have a shot, right? Beto came in a blue year in 2018 within two or three points of beating Ted Cruz. In this poll, he's down double digits now to Greg Abbott. What about Florida? I've been hesitant to talk about this because I really am struggling to believe that Ron DeSantis could actually win that state by double digits. But 
I'm just saying, there are now three consecutive polls that I've seen with Ron DeSantis up 10 or more. He's up 10 in a couple polls, one from RMG Research. Then there's one from Florida Atlantic University out today. He's up 11, 51 to 40 over Charlie Crist. By the way, Charlie Crist, campaign manager, just got let go over a, an alleged domestic violence incident. So when it rains, it pours on Charlie Crist, the shape-shifting vessel that believes nothing at all. And DeSantis, with his built-in advantage, the voter registration advantage, his leadership during COVID, all of that stuff, plus now his excellent handling of the hurricane, I mean, it is at least realistic that guy could win maybe by very high single digits, if not crack into the double digits, which is just like mind-blowing in a state like Florida. So that one is not looking close. Same polls have Rubio up, you know, six points, something like that, in the Senate race. So conceivably you would think in a swing state like Florida, in a big year, you know, the governor's race could be close, just like in Texas, not looking very close. Those are the types of things that start to happen in wave years where maybe the Florida governor race could get called very quickly on election night. You know, possible, maybe now probable. On the other side of that same coin, other races that look cooked and over, even just a matter of weeks ago, now looking maybe not so cooked and over. New York, a couple polls now have... In that governor race, Kathy Hochul only ahead by four points, ahead by six points. There was one poll that I saw, an outlier today, that had Zeldin, the Republican, leading by one point in New York. I'm not banking, I'm not betting the farm that Lee Zeldin pulls off the upset. But the fact that he's been hanging around, focused on crime, number one issue in New York, and he's within striking distance, that is scary for the Democrats. And even if he doesn't finish the job and she hangs on by a thread and wins by, let's say, four, five, even seven points, that spells probably a lot of doom down ballot in some of these very important swing races in House districts in the state of New York. That's a race that you would think would be over 20, 25 points, 30 points. It's not. We've been told in Michigan that Gretchen Whitmer has this thing sewn up in the bag. Gretchen Whitmer, she's going to win. Right, that was the conventional wisdom. Tudor Dixon, a weak first-time candidate for the Republicans, uh, write that one off. Well, new poll out today has it a two-point race, margin of error. Who knows if that's true? Maybe it's an outlier. Maybe it's part of a trend. It really seems like there's a broad trend happening here, doesn't it? And if that race is very competitive, whether Tudor Dixon wins or not, if that's a very close race, that also helps some of these House races in the state of Michigan where a blowout at the top of the ticket could be more of a problem for Republicans, it's shifting the other way. Even New Hampshire in the Senate race, very flawed Republican nominee against a super vulnerable, or at least should be Democratic incumbent Maggie Hassan, this do-nothing rubber stamp for Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer. You know, I think she would be getting crushed by a guy like Chris Sununu, who's going to waltz to re-election as governor, but she had this guy, Don Balduck, running against, like, okay, she won't debate him. It's not really on the map anymore. Well, new poll out today has that one a two-point race. Now, whether you want to believe that or not, if it's two points in New Hampshire with that guy on the ballot, some of these other races, if you think of Pennsylvania or Georgia or Arizona, maybe they are tinting more red 
than people are willing to admit. Right? It just kind of makes sense. So you just float through a lot of these numbers, and you start to look at the polling, the direction of this stuff, some of the early voting nuggets that seem to portend maybe not great things for Democrats not hitting their marks, not hitting their numbers. And I'm coming on the air today telling you, at least based on my analysis right now, the reports of the red wave dissipating and disappearing over the summer were perhaps greatly exaggerated. The fundamentals, the gravity is real. And right now it looks like November could be very painful for the ruling party. That won't happen because of polls. It will happen because of voters. Nothing should be taken for granted. But there has been a turn. Something is happening. I think the data bears it out. We'll ask Josh about it later as well. Up on a break as we are just getting started on this Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show. From Rehoboth, Delaware, Biden's backyard. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson, back here on the Guy Benson Show. Tracking the economy, of course, number one issue on voters' minds. Don't tell the Democrats. They're like late-term abortion all the way, guys. But you look at the polling, it's inflation, it's the economy, and the way that inflation gets wrangled back under control is through a recession, right? Hiking interest rates and, and really curtailing demand and forcing a significant economic slowdown beyond what we've already experienced, beyond the technical recession that we're already in. Here is one of those flashing red lights Relatedly, Wall Street Journal today, U.S. existing home sales fell for an eighth straight month in September, the longest streak of declines in 15 years, as the once booming housing market becomes a bigger drag on the economy. And you look at the mortgage rates, which are spiking close to 7% now. People now can't afford to buy houses. Now, this could be one of those leading indicators of more pain to come. And unfortunately, I think the expectation by nearly all economists is that is what is in the cards for the U.S. And it didn't have to be this bad, which is why the party in charge of everything right now stands to lose a lot of seats in November. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Bouncing into the weekend here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Well, there's a new catchphrase at the White House. They come up with a new one. Get ready for it. It comes at the end of this answer from Joe Biden talking earlier today. And I see that the crack team over at the uh, the White House communications office, they're out there. 
I guess, uh, Putin's price hike. They, they had to move on from that one. We've got a new one. Get ready for it. Cut 22. They have three, not one, not two, three plans to cut Social Security benefits. Three plans. They're not going to stop there. They're going to do big farmers bidding to repeal my plan to allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drugs prices. We pay the highest in the world. And doing so, it's going to raise drug prices. And they're going to raise big farmers' profits. They're doing fine, big farmers. They're not hurting at all. And they're going to raise your health insurance premiums. It's mega, mega trickle-down. Mega, mega trickle-down. The kind of policies that have failed the country before and will fail it again. I mean, look, we can talk about entitlement reform and the need for it. It's just math. Neither party is serious about it. The Democrats are totally delusional about it. That's a very important discussion for another day. We've had it here many times in the past. But that's it. Mega, mega trickle-down. Mega, mega trickle-down. That's the new one. I'm sure that'll work. <laughs> They're out there tweeting it, trying to get a hashtag going. Mega, mega trickle-down. Okay. Yeah, it's a real game-changer here. Two and a half weeks left. Look around. He's like, oh, the Republicans will make inflation worse. Really? How? How could it be worse than what you're doing? They don't want to do all this spending that you've all done in your party exclusively that you're now admitting heavily fueled a lot of the inflation. The Republicans were against that. It's just they're, they're casting about for anything. They're flailing. They've got nothing. But he's doing his best, I guess. And with us now to discuss state of things over at the White House is our colleague, Peter Ducey, White House correspondent here at Fox News. Peter, happy Friday to you. Hey, Guy. Happy Friday. How are you doing? Well, I'm well. I'm actually coming to you live from Rehoboth, Delaware, and I know we're expecting the president here uh, within the next couple of hours. Maybe I could take up the torch. If you go home and, you know, have a drink and enjoy your weekend, I can go to Biden's house down the road and start shouting questions at him. Maybe he'll insult me. I, I, I can text you the address. <laughs> okay, yes. Yeah, so I'll, I'll keep an eye on my phone for that. If I can see, like, can I find a bullhorn somewhere? I'll work on it. In the meantime, you have spent quite a bit of time over the last few days pressing the White House on energy costs and their own words versus what they're trying to say now. And I know Corrine Jean-Pierre was sort of putting on this air of confusion, like whatever are you talking about, but you're just reading the president's quotes back to her, things that he said as the president, things that he said as a candidate, and then the demands that they're making on oil companies now. There seems to be something of a mismatch there rhetorically. Well, it's it, we're kind of at a collision right now. I know President Biden likes to say we're at an inflection point, but I would describe it more as a collision between the long-term goals that he had to establish to survive the Democratic primary two years ago, uh, which was when he said he was going to end fossil fuels, uh, versus these short-term realities of rising gas prices and very limited things he can do to try to address them, like tapping into the reserve. Whether or not that's going to work, it remains to be seen. It hasn't really done the trick uh, in a meaningful way over the last couple months, but it it is just Biden's big picture things meeting the stuff that is on the front pages, and, uh, and that's how we got here, I guess. Yep. I mean, the political rhetoric, the political promises, the ideological project versus current political realities. And they are 
twisting themselves into pretzels to try to sort of justify things and reconcile things. I'm not really sure how successful they're being. I guess voters will render that verdict in a couple of weeks here. You also had an opportunity to actually get a question asked and answered from the president this week about priorities. Talk about that exchange. A completely reasonable question. You look at what the Democrats are spending a lot of money on still, abortion, abortion, abortion. Voters are focused on inflation, inflation, inflation. You tried to get him to sort of you know rank some of these concerns, and he responded how? Well, he said that it's kind of an all-of-the-above approach, but the reason that I asked him whether or not the top domestic priority is inflation or abortion is because he has been saying and and you know when i go in there to talk to him or talk to Karine Jean-Pierre i've got old quotes printed out to just in case anybody asks uh he said he uh, inflation is his top domestic priority he said it back in may but now he's saying if the democrats keep the congress the first bill is going to be to make roe v wade uh, Roe v. Wade, the law of the land. So, like, which is it? Uh, mm-hmm. Because all the polls show the people, the uh, independents, Republicans, a lot of Democrats are the most worried, uh, like people that are going to go vote, uh, are the most worried about inflation, the economy, jobs, prices. And now that it's so close and they're trying to make sure that the most motivated Democrats go and vote, uh, abortion is on level footing with inflation yeah, according I mean, to him yeah according to him and uh, and according to the party in fact they've really been focused on that and a lot of their spending and messaging and again it's you know we're going to see if that bears fruit or not electorally for them the president did make a somewhat rare appearance on the campaign trail yesterday in pennsylvania on behalf of john fetterman who is losing momentum in that senate race which is now a statistical tie in pennsylvania did you get any sense of, because I know Biden gets defensive of this, like, oh, no, I'm out there campaigning all the time. Uh, he's not, right? It's, it's, he has been notably absent, especially from important races, because the candidates either explicitly or implicitly have suggested they'd rather not be seen with him. Fetterman decided, you know, even in a state where Biden is not popular, all right, I guess let's bring in the big guy here. Uh, is there any, based on people you're chatting with, uh, with at the White House or political operatives who are explaining why Fetterman and the White House operation felt like this was a good idea for everyone involved? No, but as you watch the president, you know, there are a lot of, if you read some of the stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post trying to explain away the president's uh, lack of a campaign schedule, they're saying, no, 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 Uh, it's not that he doesn't have a lot of events. It's that he's going to these places and fundraising, and he's making money for these candidates, whether he appears with them or not. The Pennsylvania appearances are going to become more and more interesting because yesterday, at least for the public part that the press was allowed to go and document, um, the candidate, John Fetterman, never even spoke. President Biden did all the talking Mm -hmm. for both of them. And so that tells me, as somebody who has covered many uh, Biden events, but also Pennsylvania midterm events over the years. Uh, it's going to be like that. They, they've decided they spent there is so much consultant money in Pennsylvania, and they spend so much money on ads because of the Pittsburgh and Philadelphia media markets, and uh, that they they know exactly what works and what doesn't. So some Democratic consultant has decided we don't need John Fetterman to speak for himself, but when Biden comes, it helps a little bit. And so I, I think mm-hmm. that's what we're 
what we're getting at there. Uh, maybe. Again, I don't want to make any overly confident predictions about anything because I'm not a fool. But I would just say, Peter, speaking for myself, if you are a Democratic consultant and you feel like your best play right now is to have the guy running for Senate not speak for himself very much and instead hand that baton over to Joe Biden in your state where he's underwater by 15 to 20 points, it kind of seems like dire straits. Maybe not, not the position they would hope to be in, however many, 18 or so days out from the election. But, you know, maybe they've got some focus groups and some internal polling that suggests it will be helpful. Uh, and again, you know, we don't have to sit around twiddling our thumbs wondering about it for all that much longer, thank God. Voters will actually have their say. People are voting actively already in Pennsylvania, the mail-in ballots, for example. Peter, have you, have you seen these stories? seems like there's been a little boomlet of them in the last couple of days about the role the First Lady has been playing in this administration and some of the decisions being made, uh, some of the, the messaging and other things, how she's really putting her mark on the presidency. I'm, maybe I'm just sort of like imagining a little trend of these stories, but it seems like they're happening all at once, and I'm, I'm trying to make a sense of why all of a sudden – there are people going you know, on the record or off the record to talk about Jill Biden at this moment. It seems like she's more welcome on the campaign trail than her husband. That might be part of it. I'm not sure why it's happening now. Um, but remember, like two summers ago at the convention, a big part of the program was uh, that Jill Biden was the ultimate Biden defender. She was the one that was looking out for him and by – by doing that was making sure that all of his policies and his proposals happened. Um, and we just didn't see a lot of that, uh, the, that narrative or that storyline surrounding her um, until now. So they bring it out right before elections and right before they, they are trying to get people excited, whether or not, uh, you know, I, I don't have a ton of experience dealing directly with the first lady, um, I've seen these stories, but the the number one commonality, I would say, is that whether it's at a convention or right before a midterm election, they, they want to make it known that it's not just Biden, Joe Biden you're voting for. It's her, too, and she'll make sure that stuff happens. Lastly, we had our colleague on just the other day, Bill Malugin, and we asked him about this story, El Paso, Texas, and the leadership there and whether the White House was pressuring them not to declare a state of emergency over the border crisis in that Democrat-run city. And it seems like the story keeps changing. At first, the mayor himself said publicly on camera that the White House had asked him not to do that, and then he didn't. Then it got reported in the New York Post and elsewhere that there were members of the city council who said, yeah, he was telling them the same thing. The White House asked them not to do it, so they didn't do it. He then pushed back on the story saying, no, no, they did ask me, but I didn't think it was necessary, so I agreed with them. This isn't really a story. And then the, the latest thing is just a denial. He went on with Dana Perino on our air and said, no, they never asked me. Uh, we have him on tape saying it, and then the White House, I guess, is denying interference here. It just seems a little bit puzzling since they, they keep shifting – what the explanation is, whether or not this even happened. Puzzling is a good way to put that, Guy. And it's interesting. I was thinking about this while I was watching Bill uh, explain the details of this on our air the other day. We're focusing now, and I guess it's just the nature of this cycle, 
Um, we're focusing now more on like an internal White House did they didn't they than we are on the actual border border crisis numbers, like the people coming across. And I know that part of that is because the administration is not being as transparent as they have been in months that are not right before an election uh, with the number of people that are coming in, uh, prosecuted, gotten away, sent home. And so I, it seems like something that the White House would be happy to say, we didn't have anything to do with this, and then move on to another issue, as opposed to have to confront the the bigger immigration challenges. Yeah. And instead, yeah, it's sort of like this process question, but it, I don't think it reflects well on anyone involved because this is sort of like a Democrat on Democrat squabble where the official quote unquote explanation from both sides keeps changing. I mean, we wouldn't be talking about it unless Democrats in El Paso, elected Democrats, had come out and said this and revealed that it happened. And now like a half walk back, then a full walk back and the White House saying, no, no, that didn't happen. It's just, you know, again, I just look at all of this and I'm just like shrug emoji. What are they doing? It doesn't make any sense to me, but that is often the case with this particular crew, at least when it comes to me. Peter Ducey always trying to get answers on all, our, on all of our behalf at the White House when he's on duty there with the president, the press secretary, etc. Peter Ducey, White House correspondent at Fox News, our guest. Peter, have a great weekend. Great to talk to you. Enjoy Rehoboth. See you guys. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. You know what? There's a little uh, montage of some flashbacks I want you to hear. Cut four. It is the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. This is Jim Crow on steroids, what they're doing in, in Georgia and 40 other states. Jim Crow 2.0 is about two insidious things. Voter suppression and election subversion. It's no longer about who gets to vote. It's about making it harder to vote. That, of course, is the voice of our president screaming about the Georgia election law, calling it worse than Jim Crow. Worse than Jim Crow. I'm not getting over this one. It's outrageous. Shame on Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock, the president of the United States, a bunch of corporations who bought into this and amplified this nonsense. Jim Crow was evil. Jim Crow was government-mandated discrimination, segregation, evil, 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 racism. And what they did in Georgia was streamline their election process. They expanded early voting in some ways. They did not make it harder to vote. And there has been no voter suppression because they blew past every record in the primary. And so far, in the early vote, they are smashing previous records again. There's no suppression here. We played the clip yesterday of Stacey Abrams being like, well, huge turnout doesn't mean there isn't suppression. Actually, yes, it does. When votes aren't being suppressed, there's no suppression. You're just embarrassed that your lies are being exposed. And I think that there are different shades of disgust when it comes to lies. I think lying in a racial way to, in an 
ugly fashion tar political opponents as racists baselessly, that is right up there as one of the worst kinds of lies I can think of in our politics. And they all dove face first into that tank. Worse than Jim Crow. They don't really believe that. Joe Biden has got to be old enough to, like, remember actual Jim Crow. He's probably, I think he has, lied about some stories having marched in civil rights and vastly exaggerated what he did at that time, because that's what he always does. Vast exaggerations are complete fabrications. But he's old enough to know better what Jim Crow was. To even compare what happened in Georgia and the, the bill that they passed, the election reforms, totally common sense, normal stuff. To compare that in any way, shape, or form to Jim Crow is disgusting. To say that it is worse than Jim Crow is historically illiterate and morally bereft. And yet that was the official line from the President of the United States doing the bidding of Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock down there in Georgia. And now we've had a primary cycle and we're in the middle of a general cycle where that lie is being absolutely shredded by voters of all stripes. Republicans, Democrats, white, black, they're showing up in droves. The suppression thing was a lie. The racial angle was disgusting. They tried it. They're failing. And I hope that those lies are punished by voters in November. Big races down there. A lot at stake. Governor and Senate. If you're listening to my voice in Georgia, get it done. This sort of recklessness should not just sort of be glossed over. There have to be consequences. Accountability at the ballot box, please. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show upcoming. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on The Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every single day when the show is over. That's on demand. I mentioned at the top that I'm broadcasting from Rehoboth, Delaware, where the president is expected really any minute, later this afternoon or early evening. And I'm not kidding. I just got a text during the commercial break from my husband, who is at a bar here in Rehoboth with some friends. And guess who's there? He said, Jill Biden is here. I said, that's Dr. Jill Biden to you. Thank you very much. But uh, she's in the house, apparently. So maybe I'll have to go join when the show is over, if she's still around. Let's bring you a Fox News alert real quick. With the Dow surging at the close and finishing the week up 749 points today. Big day. And ending at 31,083. So a bit of a rally to close out the trading week on Wall Street. Joining me now is Joe O'Day. Business owner, contractor, and now U.S. Senate nominee for the Republican Party in the great state of Colorado. And he joins us once again. And it's great to have you back, sir. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it, Guy. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, let's talk about your race. I'd like to start with a quick soundbite from your opponent. He was on CNN a few days ago. He was asked about the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which he, of course, voted for. He votes for everything that the Democrats push. Um, and the question from Dan Abash was a pretty simple one. And his answer, well, you can hear for yourself and cut 20. Why isn't the Inflation Reduction Act reducing inflation? 
Well, because the elements of the Inflation Reduction Act aren't going to kick in for a while, Dana. Well, I could also add that Bernie Sanders even admitted the Inflation Reduction Act wasn't actually about inflation. It was about a bunch of spending and other projects and priorities that they just put a label on to pretend that they were doing something about inflation. But Michael Bennett, your senator, your opponent, saying, well, look, you know, it's going to take a while for this stuff to kick in. Do you think that's an answer that's going to resonate with the people of Colorado? Well, look, he, he's just dis, dishonest. I mean, the bottom line is, is it's a tax. The in, in, Inflation Reduction Act is a tax. It's, uh, it's designed to go after working Americans. They've got a new bureaucracy that they've funded, uh, the IRS bureaucracy, with $80 billion. They're going to send 87,000 bureaucrats after working Americans. I uh, just saw a, a, a uh, a column on uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is a, a nonpartisan, and they're saying that those audits, 75% of them, are going to be against uh, working Americans making less than 100 grand. Uh, they're taxing uh, our uh, uh, manufacturers 15%. And then they, one thing that he hasn't told everybody is there's a $16 uh, dollar a, a barrel excise tax on oil. So they're, they're, it's a tax, and, and that's the part that he's just disingenuous on. This thing is never going to do anything to inflation. It's more spending. If anything, it's just going to shove inflation further up. Right now, the $1.9 trillion that he voted for, he was the 50th vote uh, for the rescue plan. That's caused record supercharged inflation here in the United States. Colorado's really feeling it. We're at almost 15%. And working Americans have taken a 10% haircut on their uh, the value of their dollars. It's not going near as far. They're paying through the nose for groceries right now. It's caused record pricing on gas and and uh, diesel. Uh, this is this is a dire time, and he continues to spend. Meanwhile, we had you on the show a couple weeks ago, and it was kind of a unique interview because it was both you and Senator Tom Cotton, who was in town stumping for you uh, from Arkansas, and we were chatting back and forth about a number of issues, and you brought up fentanyl and drugs coming across the border and the border crisis in general. My understanding is you're actually heading down there, doing something soon that the border czar, the vice president, can't really be bothered to do. The president hasn't done it all, uh, even during his vice presidency. You're going down there to see it for yourself. That's what I've heard. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Um, uh, this election's a referendum on Joe Biden and Michael Bennett's failures. Uh, they're locked at the hip. Bennett's with him 98% of the time. And right now there's a humanitarian crisis at the border. Migrants are dying. We've got human trafficking. The border's leaking fentanyl. Uh, and, and this fentanyl is killing working Americans right now. We've got 1,900 Coloradans that lost their life to this poison and, and, and other drugs last year, uh, and we've got to put an end to it. Uh, Bennett and Biden, they will not treat it like a crisis. I will. Every state right now is a border state, including Colorado. We're hurting up here. I spent uh, some time with Chief Pazin, uh, Denver Police Chief, and Sheriff Schrader from the Jeffco uh, sheriff's department and and now i want to go down there and i want to hear from the folks at the border and, and i'm going to make this a priority in the senate we've got to get this border secured uh too many americans are, are losing their lives too many coloradans this has got to be a priority and i think i can help get a bill put across uh that that gets this uh, border secured 
Did you have any comment on the Daily Beast story that just came out this week about Michael Bennett's stock portfolio and some of the moves he made and raising some eyebrows there with uh, some of his knowledge in Congress and the Senate and then what he's been doing in terms of his own personal finances? Did you see the story? What's your reaction to that? Well, I think it's shameful. I mean, while working Americans are getting hammered by uh, taxes and and losing uh, our, our footing, uh, as far as the you know inflation, it's eaten up ten percent. He's getting wealthy in the Senate, and then when you look into it, and we're talking about betting on Puerto Rico to fail, boy, I, I don't know if I'd want to be putting those investments out. I think it's shameful that uh, that these uh, senators go there, these Congress people go there, and they get rich while they're there. Uh, that's not what this is designed to do. Uh, if I was going to get rich, I'd stay in my business. Uh, I didn't have to. I don't have to do this, and, and I'll make sure that it doesn't happen on my watch. I do want to ask you. I'm sure you've seen some of the analyses. Oh, it's a sleeper race. It's a dark horse race out there in Colorado. If the wave gets big enough, Joe O'Day, he's kept it close. He's in striking distance. Maybe he can pull it off. You know, keep an eye on Colorado. I think that buzz is interesting. I'm curious about your thoughts on your position right now, two and a half weeks out from the election. Obviously, it's a mail-in out in, in Colorado predominantly. And then you have sort of out of nowhere this statement from former President Trump attacking you you know, the, the Republican nominee in this tough seat and a tough state for Republicans. Trump lost it by double digits. And I guess, you know, you were sometimes critical of him and he never likes that sort of thing. So he's he's criticizing you. He's dumping on you right before an election is the Republican Party's standard bearer. Uh, is that something that you just can sort of shrug off? There are a lot of Colorado Republicans who, who really like Trump. When that press release or that email went out, uh, what was your reaction to that? Well, I, I guess I'm off the Christmas list. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's tough. I, I said what I said. Look, I, I'm not a politician. I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a contractor, and uh, there's a lot of good Republicans. Ron DeSantis, uh, uh, Pompeo, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, Tim Scott. They got a lot of good ideas. I, I think one of them would help move the country forward. You know, I, I don't want to see Biden run either. Biden's horrible. This is a this election's a referendum on Biden. And I can tell you right now, when I go around and I'm talking to voters across the state here of Colorado, they're so disenchanted with this economy, with the price of their groceries, with the price of gas. Uh, This is going to be a referendum on Joe Biden's economy. Michael Bennett votes with him 100 percent, 98 percent of the time. And and it's going to be one of those deals where they're going to replace him because they want something different. They're aggravated. They're angry. They're going to turn out here in Colorado. We've built a, an enormous tent. We've got good Trump uh, supporters. We've got good uh, uh, supporters that uh, are GOP and, and unaffiliated and some Democrats that have jumped across the aisle here because they want something different. And, and that's who I'm talking to. And that's who I'm hearing from across the state. So I, I'm, I'm super excited to to get a win here in November. I am. What's your path to victory? Uh, It seems possible, plausible, still uphill given the blueness of that state. And it's gotten bluer in recent years. How do you actually, you know, pull it off and get over the top November 8th? Well, we just keep talking about the issues that are important to working Americans because they've been forgotten for far far too long. And and I'm going to continue to do that. I'll outwork these guys. That's, that's what I do. The, uh, the, the path is simple. It's voter turnout. Uh, Republicans will turn out here. 
uh, on, on a non-election, a non-presidential year, we're going to win up and down the ticket. That's the key. That's what I've been talking about across the state, and and they're with us. They're they're excited about an opportunity to change the entire United States government with just one seat in the U.S. Senate. They're fired up about it. Yeah, and you're running a strong campaign. Uh, I think it's a, a quality candidacy. Uh, smart and disciplined, and if someone's going to pull a shocker off, or maybe like a half shocker off in November, Joe O'Day would be near the top of my list out there in Colorado. Joe, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it, Guy. We must be over the target because the, the Democrats have spent $30 million in past- Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. On Outnumbered yesterday on the news channel, we talked about a terrible story in D.C. where a woman was beaten nastily by a mob on a bus. She had asked some people to stop swearing so much because there were kids around, and then they beat her. It was caught on video. The video is upsetting to watch. The victim, Kyla Thurston, spoke out about it in Cut 23. They just started physically assaulting me, and as I'm telling the bus driver, I'm like, let me off, let me off, let me off, open the door, open the door. The amount of kids that was on that bus, why didn't anybody else attempt to assist me? They probably thought the same, like they would have been assaulted as well. She didn't deserve that. Like, hey, stop swearing around these kids, and she gets pummeled in public on camera. Just another day in the life of Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia specifically, the district attorney there, Larry Krasner, this left-winger who keeps pretending that crime is really a problem because of Trump in red states or whatever. And he says anyone who tells you otherwise is like a Republican liar. This is something that he constantly talks about to try to distract from, number one, the fact that he's just wrong. To the extent that there are crimes being committed at a higher rate in some red states and some blue states, it's because they're happening overwhelmingly in blue Democrat-run cities which is obvious unless you're an idiot or dishonest. And it's absolutely trying to ignore and deflect from the abject failure in Philadelphia on his watch when it comes to crime, which is his job. Maybe he forgets from time to time because he seems very pro-criminal. But his job is to enforce the law and to stop crime and to punish it. And he's doing a historically disastrous job of it. And whenever anyone points that out, it's like off to these other, like, squirrel talking points. Look over there. And now, of course, he is adding to the repertoire allegations of racism as well against anyone who dares to notice the crime spree over which he's presiding in his city. And by the way, you know who's a big fan of Larry Krasner? Well, not just George Soros, who funds his campaigns. John Fetterman, of course. Mr. Soft on Crime, giant with a heart of gold or whatever, running for U.S. Senate. Which we'll be talking about a little bit more in the next segment, that race, that candidate. But Fetterman and Krasner, peas in a pod when it comes to this stuff. And Krasner gave a statement the other day, I think it was right outside City Hall, where he was railing not against criminals and crime, but Republicans who noticed the crime, who I guess are racists, cut 27. Part of the Republican playbook, as you well know, is to point a finger at large, diverse cities and say large, diverse cities are lawless. Does that remind you of anything? You ever heard that before? Those of you in the press, 
are students of history, you're aware of the Southern strategy. What we see here is the same old playbook, which is about coded and racist messaging. It's about blaming the biggest city in Pennsylvania with the most diverse population for having the same national struggle that we have with gun violence everywhere, and even having increases that are less than the committee's counties. I mean, it's racist, it's code words, what? Pointing out that they've shattered the record on carjackings, more than a 1,000 this year? It's racist? Why? Explain why, white man, district attorney. Seems kind of racist that he has the job. I mean, isn't representation important? Why wouldn't he give up his job to someone else? You know, a racial minority or at least a woman. They're obsessed with that stuff. And here's this white dude lecturing people about racism. And I guess this racism comes in the very insidious form of noticing crime. The murder numbers are horrible. And the problem, it seems, in his mind, are the people who have the temerity to talk about the crime. It's amazing. Meanwhile, in that same city of Philadelphia, Wawa, you know that chain? It's sort of a a local or regional chain. They're known, I believe, for their hoagies, they call them, their sandwiches. Wawa, and this goes back to what we were talking about yesterday, with the Starbucks in Washington, D.C. Union Station shut down. Too unsafe to operate, which is why they shut down a bunch of stores across the country. Too much crime, can't operate. Profitable stores, it's not safe. Likewise, Wawa has announced it's closing two city center stores in Philadelphia because of a surge in crime. This beloved local franchise, regional franchise, saying we can't operate these stores anymore with the crime happening. And Larry Krasner, the law enforcement officer in Philadelphia, well, I wonder, has he thought of calling Wawa racist? Maybe they're racist, too. Maybe the victims are racist by even reporting the crime. We're supposed to just shut up about it because it's inconvenient to him. It shows what a failure he is. It shows what a failure his ideological project is from which he is completely undeterred. He and Fetterman are just like marching forward with failure. Dangerous, violent failure. And he's just sort of whistling past the graveyard. Never mind Wawa closing the stores because it's too unsafe. Never mind all these crime stats. That's all racist to talk about. You shut up. It's a Republican's fault. It's their playbook, the Southern strategy or something. Oh, it's the diverse city. No, it's just the crime, man. Get that under control. It's your whole job. I'll leave you with this, relatedly. This is from the local Fox affiliate down there. A man who was convicted in 2012 of a murder in Philly was just set free from prison last year, eight years into a life sentence. And I guess there's this conviction integrity unit that found something wrong with the conviction, and Krasner's championed it, and Fetterman applauded. Of course, Fetterman wants people out of prison early, all of them, even first-degree murderers. Why? Well, the Shawshank Redemption, of course. That was his answer. The guy from Shawshank, Morgan Freeman's character. He shouldn't have to spend his whole life in prison, so why should anyone else? That was his actual answer about letting first-degree murderers out of prison early. Well, in this case, and this gentleman, this individual, was released. And guess what? He is now wanted by the Philadelphia Police Department for another murder. Well, go figure.
Larry Krasner's Philadelphia, John Fetterman's Philadelphia. This is their vision. This is what they want. They want more of this. They're committed to it. And I would imagine if they lose upcoming elections, that'll probably be the fault of racists. That'll be the explanation, which is fine. Let them say whatever they want, but vote. The Guy Benson Show continues. Let's stay in Pennsylvania. There's some sound you need to hear from that Senate race. Joe Biden's visit yesterday, etc. It's coming up next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Glad you are here. So if you haven't noticed already, I'm sort of obsessed with this Senate race in Pennsylvania. Because strategically, it's very important, obviously. It's a numbers game in the Senate. But also, I have developed a fairly healthy disdain for the Democratic nominee in this race, John Fetterman who is the lieutenant governor somehow of the state of Pennsylvania. And he had Joe Biden, bold move, you know, bold strategy, Cotton. We'll see how this works out for him. But he brought Joe Biden, who is unpopular in the state, to the state to campaign with him yesterday. And apparently Fetterman didn't speak. Biden did the talking. It's like, well, if you're outsourcing the talking to Joe Biden, maybe it's not uh, the best scenario for you, but... Be that as it may, they appeared at two different events. One of them was an infrastructure-related event. And after the president spoke and after the event was sort of clearing out, a reporter tried to ask Fetterman a question about infrastructure, about a bridge that was being built. And Fetterman did not respond. He just stood there. His wife, Giselle, who Rolling Stone has called the de facto candidate in the race. She's doing a lot of interviews. She's kind of speaking on her husband's behalf. Some people have been celebrating that. Other people are trying to keep it on the hush-hush because it kind of plays into certain narratives about the race and about Fetterman's health that maybe aren't that helpful. But she responded to the inquiry from the reporter by saying, we're not taking questions, sort of the royal we. We're not taking questions. We're here to celebrate, I guess, whatever this project was. And I saw a few people making fun of this response. Like, first of all, she's speaking again on his behalf to tell a reporter that they're not going to take questions. We're not taking questions right now. Why would a reporter want a comment from a man running for the United States Senate at a presidential event in his state? It's so ridiculous to ask for comment. They're just there to celebrate, after all. It was a little strange seeing Fetterman in a suit, by the way, like a jacket and tie, as opposed to his usual uniform of a ratty hooded sweatshirt and mesh gym shorts. I guess he had to class it up just a little bit because the president of the United States was coming to town. But don't get crazy, reporters. No more questions. No questions at all, actually. No words at all from the man running for Senate with less than three weeks to go. That debate is coming up on Tuesday, which should be fairly interesting. I would imagine that the Fetterman people are really preparing for it. I think that their expectations are relatively low. They might be able to use that to their advantage, as we've seen, for example, in Georgia for Herschel Walker. When people aren't expecting almost anything 
or they're expecting, you know, in this case, maybe long pauses and auditory problems and all of that. If he can beat expectations, that could help him. And I think Republicans shouldn't play that element up too much, quite frankly. Focus on his record. Focus on his ideas. Focus on his radicalism. If the health thing is a problem and voters can see that for themselves in the debate, then it will be sorted out by the electorate. Wasting time talking endlessly about his health, although the transparency, I think, is a real issue, I think that that is a distraction that almost helps Fetterman. Because every moment he's not talking about his insane record and comments about crime and letting murderers out of prison and getting rid of life sentences for murderers and all this stuff, that's a positive for Fetterman. It should just be relentless. And Oz has been pretty dedicated and disciplined on this. Crime, crime, crime in the economy. Fracking, he's lying about his position on fracking. Fetterman is. The other thing that maybe hasn't been talked about enough, because I've mentioned that the guy just seems like a total deadbeat, not paying taxes, having to get liens against him, and the government coming after him just to pay his local taxes for the schools that he supposedly supports so much. He's a big public school union, teachers union guy, loves them, anti-school choice, even though he's sending his own kids to a ritzy private school. Likely paid for, if I had to guess, by his parents, since they've subsidized his whole life. He was on the payroll of his parents, like almost literally tens of thousands a year, to subsidize his like loafing around and doing politics and activism up until he was 49 years old. And I guess he just forgot or didn't want to pay taxes on some of this stuff and was therefore, based on the Democratic standard, starving public education while he's against school choice to allow kids to get out of failing public schools. Kids who don't have moms and dads who are super rich who can just pay for whatever they need. What about those kids? Well, I guess they're screwed. They got a stick in those public schools. No matter how badly they're failing, that's the John Fetterman position. But hey, if he forgets or declines to pay taxes toward those public schools in his own neighborhood, I mean, you know, so be it. That's John Fetterman. And of course, he wants to raise your taxes as well, right? So he's against school choice. There's hypocrisy there. He wants to raise taxes when he wouldn't pay his own taxes. It's just sort of amazing. This guy's made it so far. And the line that I keep using, different versions of it, is John Fetterman, I think, with the look, right, kind of like this ogre look with the goatee and everything. He wants, in the tattoos, he wants to read as authentic, working-class, hard-scrabble guy, except he's a rich kid, and he doesn't work. He's never cared much for work. Seems like he loves running for office, winning some of these elections, and then not really doing the job. Here's some more details on this from the Washington Free Beacon. This is from Chuck Ross. Some more details on a story we have actually been following here for a while. Listen to this. I, just, like, I can't believe this man appeals to almost anyone. Story says John Fetterman has few official duties as Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor. Still, the Senate hopeful has failed to show up for nearly every meeting for two economic development committees on which he serves, skipping the sessions to conduct media interviews go on vacation, or to do nothing at all. Since 2019, Fetterman missed 11 out of 13 meetings for the Pennsylvania Military Community Enhancement Commission and the Local Government Advisory Committee, according to meeting records and calendars obtained by the Washington Free Beacon. He missed several meetings in October 2020 on days he gave interviews to MSNBC, Australia's Sky News, and the Progressive Pod Save America podcast record show. 
He missed the military commission session in October 2019 to travel to his hometown for, quote, family stuff the following day. He skipped the local government advisory committee meeting in June while on vacation at the shore. On some days, he skipped committee meetings. Fetterman's calendars were completely blank. It's the latest example of Fetterman's truancy in public office. As a mayor of Braddock, a town of less than 2,000 people, Fetterman missed more than one-third of city council meetings, the Free Beacon reported. As lieutenant governor, Fetterman failed to show up to one-third of Senate sessions. His absenteeism has drawn scrutiny from Republicans and Democrats alike. State Senator Tony Williams, the Democratic whip, told Politico that Fetterman often failed to show up to preside over the Senate, hampering his ability to develop relationships with state lawmakers. Jesse Brown, a former Braddock Borough uh, Council president, said in 2015 that Fetterman, quote, should have been at all the council meetings, but stopped showing up after several confrontations over his duties as mayor. Fetterman only has four official duties. Listen to this. Four official duties as lieutenant governor, a job with limited responsibilities for which he is paid around $180,000 a year. In addition to these two committees, which he chairs, he is chairman of the Pennsylvania Board of Pardons, which he always shows up for to try to let murderers out of prison. That's like his passion in life, apparently. He'll chase an innocent black jogger down with a shotgun. But I guess that's part of his weird view on justice. But he's big on letting actual convicted felons out early. And then he also, his fourth and final duty here, is to oversee the Senate when it's in session. Fetterman has attended all of the Board of Pardons meetings, where he cast numerous votes to free first-degree murderers. But Fetterman has missed five out of six meetings for the Military Community Enhancement Commission, He's missed six out of seven meetings for the local government advisory committee, and he frequently would not preside over the Senate, where his schedule was just open a lot of the days. He just did nothing. Either that he was out there giving interviews to you know left-leaning or left-wing media sources. That's what John Fetterman has been up to. So he was an absentee mayor over a crumbling city, that has seen its population collapse, crime rise, the central hub of the city, the hospital, closed on his watch. He wasn't paying his taxes on time for the local schools, which had been struggling. And then he decided, you know what, let's take this record of success to Harrisburg. And he became lieutenant governor, where he has very little that he actually has to do in that job while collecting... Six figures from taxpayers. That must be nice. Finally, mom and dad get a break from the gravy train. That's been shifted over to taxpayers as lieutenant governor. That he's not doing that job. He didn't do the job in Braddock, where he was a bad mayor. Then he became lieutenant governor. He's not showing up for that job. Even for the basic stuff, the few things that he's required to do, he doesn't. And now he wants to be a United States senator. And he only agreed to do one debate. It's, it's just amazing to me. It is truly breathtaking that someone with this background and this resume is even within shouting distance of a seat in the United States Senate. And it's one thing if you're from like a deep red state or a deep blue state, all you have to do is get a nomination, you're automatically in. You can get through the primary and then just coast. They'll just elect anyone with a D you know, or an R next to their name. doesn't matter who they are. That'd be one thing. Pennsylvania is like a battleground state. It's an important state. It's a large state. And this is the person that Democrats have chosen 
as their best offering for the United States Senate. It's really quite something. His truancy, by the way, in Pennsylvania, where the race is roughly tied, rated as a pure toss-up, poll yesterday had it exactly tied, another poll today, I think two or three points, margin of error, huge momentum for Oz. The guy, as I say, likes to be like Mr. Working Class without the work, really without any of the work. He can't be bothered with the actual duties. He just wants the power and the perks and the TV lights and the interviews and the opportunity to post little mean memes on the Internet about his opponents or whatever. And the snark is a little bit harder with his current condition, but that seems to be like the fuel that keeps his campaign going. But a partner in doing nothing across the country is in Arizona. Katie Hobbs is the Secretary of State who also won't debate. In this case, she won't debate at all against her general election opponent, Carrie Lake. This story came out, saw it on foxnews.com earlier. Over the last six months, the Secretary of State in that state, Katie Hobbs, running for Senate, only showed up to work at her office on 19 days. 19 days of work in six months, at least at the office because she's been far too busy seeking a promotion. Now, her office accidentally sent out 10,000 federal-only ballots, so flawed ballots, a big mistake by the Secretary of State in her office in Arizona. They said, oops, that's a mistake. That's a, Sorry about that. Maybe if she showed up to work more often to do the actual job that she's been elected to, they wouldn't have messes like this. There wouldn't be this type of oversight. Maybe, maybe not, but, you know, you you can't prove a negative. What we do know is she's not there very often, and this big screw-up happens. So I think that's something that she has to answer for. She's kind of proving the point that Lake supporters and Republicans are making, saying this woman does not deserve a promotion. She's not doing the current gig well. Why would you make her now governor, chief executive of the whole state? When she runs away from questions from reporters, won't debate her opponent, can't get the job done as secretary of state, doesn't show up to the office to actually do the people's business. No, she just wants more responsibilities, more power now. Why would you give that to her? Anyway, back in Pennsylvania, when Biden was in town for that event yesterday, someone asked a question, a reporter did. Fetterman, of course, marched away like a zombie. He wasn't going to answer questions. As his wife said, we're not here to answer questions. We're here to celebrate. So Fetterman had nothing to say. He walked off. Biden did answer. The question was about him. And his answer was, well, you know, maybe you can figure this out. I can't. Cut 14. Sir, why don't more candidates want to be seen in public with you like Mr. Fetterman? What are you talking about? Tim Ryan in Ohio said he doesn't want you there. Warnock said wouldn't say. Do you think they're making a mistake? No, they're by 16 there. I've already gone in for you and a lot more asked. Oh, I think we might need subtitles on that one. 16-something was in there. Well said, Mr. President, as usual. Meanwhile, Dr. Oz out there with some new campaign ads that I think are very smart. Listen to one of them in Cut 12. Pennsylvanians are in pain. I see it in your faces, your eyes. Inflation is hurting everyone. Gas prices, food prices, retirement savings diminished. John Fetterman would raise everyone's taxes, making inflation that much worse. We need more balance and less extremism in Washington. I'm not a politician. I'm a heart surgeon. More importantly, a husband and a dad. I'm running to improve people's lives. It's what doctors do. 
I'm Dr. Oz. I approve this message. He's trying to build up his favorables, bring down his unfavorables, which was a real problem for him. He's making good progress on that front. They're also trying to drive up Fetterman's negatives, which they have done, which is why the race is now tied. And he's also not just focusing on Fetterman's bad record. He's trying to talk about extremism as a problem. And that is not only an attack on Fetterman, of course, because he is a radical, on a whole host of key issues. He's also, sort of without saying it by implication, distancing himself from the governor nominee in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, who is way out there. So he's trying to sort of come down the middle, thread the needle, and I think these ads are a savvy way to try to close your message in the final weeks of the campaign. And if this trajectory continues, Oz has a very good chance to win. He should be a senator. John Fetterman shouldn't even be lieutenant governor. That's my view of it. And the Guy Benson Show returns after this. Guy Benson will be right back. We are back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm sorry I can't resist this story. It's not even really a story. Just the audio is so fun. AOC had a town hall meeting in her district, and a bunch of left-wingers showed up and protested her, because it's all they do, right? It's all they do. It's agitation, protest all the time. You're protesting AOC because she's like a sellout and not left-wing enough. You just completely lost the script entirely. But they were chanting, and she was dancing to their chanting. Just fabulous. Here's what it sounded like. Cut 15. And she's just like grooving. She's sitting on the stage, dancing along with her shoulders. She's loving it. These are her people doing her thing. It just happens to be against her. There's this very lily white woman, like so white she could be me, who's calling her a sellout. It's just like broken brains. It's amazing. So then she tried, AOC did, to get some control of the meeting. She wanted people to listen and cut 16. All right, all right, listen, all right, listen, listen, okay, listen. Okay, listen, fun times. She wanted to say a few things. Maybe she wanted them to listen to this. The wheels on the bus go <laughs> round and round. <laughs> the wheels on the bus go giggling like a child there's a lot of important stuff happening in the world this is not important but it's fun and it's friday so why not final hour of the guy benson show coming up we'll get a little bit more serious josh k is here breaking down races when we come back it's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world washington dc it's time for the guy benson show happy hour sponsored by the finnish long drink finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to america visit the and now here's your host guy benson It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show from Rehoboth, Delaware, Biden country. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free on demand after the show is over, about an hour from now. Final hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic. I recommend it if you're 21 plus only 
Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com, their website as they expand. You can find where they're sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. And a reminder again, our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. As we kick off our final broadcast hour of the week, let's bring back in Josh Krasauer. Politics reporter, senior politics reporter, in fact, at Axios, and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, happy Friday. Welcome back. Happy Friday, Guy. Great to be back on the show. All right. So I opened today kind of going through some of the polling and doing what we've been calling a vibe check. And I don't know if you agree or disagree, but it really feels like the last couple days in particular, two or three days, this overall political cycle seems to be shifting back into full-blown wave territory for the Republicans. I'm not counting chickens. I'm not saying that this is a done deal, but not just in terms of the atmospherics, but the data, just a bunch of different metrics seem to all be pointing the arrows in the same direction, which is a redder November. Do you agree? I do, and uh, I think a lot of the pollsters and a lot of the pundits have been a little slow to appreciate that a pretty big wave may end up being may end up emerging uh, as we get closer to November. Uh, you know, we've talked about this before on the show, guy. But the voters who tune in latest and decide about their political decisions at the very end of, 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 of the of the month, those are the people that are starting to make up their minds right now. Independent voters, low uh, people who don't pay as much attention to politics, and when the economy is in the state that it's in. When inflation is, is, is as high as it is, when gas prices are as high as they are, these undecided voters tend to break against the party in power. So what we're seeing in a lot of these new polls is that the undecided voters are coming off the fence. They're, they're breaking mostly towards the Republican candidate or the Republican Party in, in these races, and it's changed the dynamic of this midterm election. Yeah, the question that I've been – mulling over and turning over in my mind now for months, and I've posed it to you, I think, exactly this way at least once or twice in the past, is will 2022 end up looking more like 2018 for the Democrats, where they had a blue wave-ish, they did well in the House, but they lost ground in the Senate because of the dynamics at play in the map, so it was a good night for them, not a massive blow-the-doors-off night, but it was, you know, a, a modest wave that didn't really crash over to the Senate, or will it look more like 2014, where for a long time it's looking competitive and close, but the fundamentals seem very bad for the party in power, and then the thing really breaks against them late, and the Republicans had a monster 2014 with the surveys in the national environment breaking late in October, and the Republicans ended up with nine new Senate seats and I believe 247 House seats that they controlled. I'm not making those predictions in terms of numbers, but just in terms of like the the sense of the outcome and the way things ended up going. It just feels to me now, Josh, looking at the data, hearing from people, not just in one particular race, but really all across the country, that maybe we're seeing more shades of 2014 now than 2018. Does that also sound at least in the ballpark to you? You know what one of my favorite definitions of a big, big wave election is, is is that even some flawed candidates get swept in the tide and get elected and get get to serve in the Senate, even if they're not running the best campaigns. So I think the the Senate races that I'm looking at, um, 
very closely as a sign if, if there's a big, big red wave on election night. You know, it's Georgia with Herschel Walker's uh, candidacy out there, Arizona, Blake Masters, and New Hampshire with Don Balduck. And we've talked about these candidates on the show many, many times, Guy, where they are underperforming where you expect Republicans to perform throughout much of the year. But look, if people just want to send a message in these swing states against the party in power, if they don't Mm -hmm. care about the candidates, they want to check Democratic governance in Washington, you could see a Blake Masters getting swept through in a a, a big Republican wave. You could see even Don Balduck. There was a a poll by a Trump's pollster, Tony Fabrizio, came out this week showing essentially a statistical tie in New Hampshire. Now, I I think Hassan has a better chance than Balduck to win that race, but if we're looking at like a Category 4, Category 5 wave, then that's a race. That, well, that's and even and even let's say it's category three, Josh. Let's just talk about a category three wave. Let's say Balduck loses, but loses relatively tight in a place like New Hampshire. And let's say Kathy Hochul, who now is down to single-digit leads. I saw one poll today had Lee Zeldin ahead by one point. I'm skeptical of that, but let's say she ends up winning by mid-single digits. That's maybe, you know, they're breathing a sigh of relief barely in those two races. But if that's what the New York governor's race is looking like, that's what the New Hampshire Senate race is looking like. Well, then you start thinking about, okay, the congressional districts in New York, if Hochul's barely winning statewide in some of those swing districts, that's probably a disaster for the Democrats. Then you think about some other Senate races that are expected to be tight, much tighter than New Hampshire. If that one isn't being close and you sort of move the whole Overton window and some of these other races, you start to feel more bullish, perhaps, if you're a Republican operative or if you're Mitch McConnell. I think that that is sort of one of the telling indicators, one of those lights that's flashing for me. Yeah, I mean, a a, a, a regular wave would give Republicans Senate seats probably in Pennsylvania and Nevada, maybe, maybe Georgia. You'd see the House easily flip with a pretty sizable majority for Kevin McCarthy. We'd be talking about a Republican win in Oregon where you have this Democratic civil war taking place. Maybe you talk about New Mexico. You talk about, you know, even some of the, you mentioned New York guy. You know, one, one po- the latest polls I've seen out of Michigan are surprisingly close, given yep. where that race looked like a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. So, you know, we're, we're, the, 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 you can see all these data points, and you can connect the dots pretty easily on, on where the political mood is. So, yeah, you're right. You know, we, 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 I think, we, you know, I, I like to make the hurricane comparison, but, you know, we're, we're looking at a possible bullseye. And even if it's not a bullseye for Republicans, it's still looking like a very favorable environment where it, it, it's some kind of wave. We'll just see how big it is come election night. The other component of this, because I know actually this is something that I've I feel like I've learned from you over the years and through these cycles, which is it's easy to get caught up in the noise and the narratives and all of it. But really, the fundamentals of elections matter perhaps more than anything. So I've been really focusing on the fundamentals. It seems like political gravity is taking hold in this cycle. It should be a terrible night in November for the Democrats. They control everything. All the winds are basically blowing hard in their faces. It shouldn't be just on paper a good night for them. It should be a very bad night for them. And it seems like now the data is sort of catching up with that. And one of the elements of those fundamentals that you always beat the drum about is presidential approval. Even if Joe Biden were in the high 40s, it could be a bad night for his party. There was that New York Times-Siena poll that came out early this week 
that had him back down at 39%. And some people were saying that's an outlier. Look at some of these other polls. Well, I think I saw today the fourth poll out this week that has Biden at 39% approval. That is another, I think, you know, neon sign for the Democrats. Danger ahead. Yeah, his job approval, the president's job approval right now, even when you look at the averages, is about a point lower than Trump's was at the in the eve of the 2018 midterm election. So it, it's lower than Obama's was in 20, uh, I guess 2010. It's lower than a lot of recent presidents who are many of them had weak approval ratings heading into that midterm election. So, you know, and, and I, I was actually just talking to a very smart Democratic operative a few hours ago who. We've talked about the issue of abortion and Democratic engagement, and certainly Democrats did motivate many of their voters to be more engaged than they were over the spring. But the number that this pollster was telling me in some of these close Senate races, close House races, they had independent women going Democratic during the summer by about double digits, 10, 15 points in a lot of the polls. It's now tied in that category. So that sugar high – the, the, the bounce that Democrats got on, on abortion, that ex- still is exciting their base, but the independent, the swing voters, the suburbanites who may have tilted a little bit to the Democrats over the summer on the abortion issue are now voting on the economy. They're now moving against the Democratic Party because they're worried about the, the, their pockets. Yeah. They're worried yeah. about the fiscal issues at play. And crime. And also the Republicans, I think, have been a little bit more aggressive about neutralizing the abortion issue by highlighting the insanity of the Democratic position on it. I think if the Democrats sort of had the Bill Clinton position on abortion, that would be one thing, and the Republicans might be flailing more. Instead, they have this crazy stance that's supported by maybe, you know, one out of five or one out of ten voters, and Republicans just cite that and point it out. And that kind of cuts into the advantage that Democrats might feel like they have on that issue, which is receding anyway. Josh, did you happen to see, I bet you you did, the Washington Post sent a camera crew to a tailgate in Pittsburgh, I think the Steelers game. They were interviewing voters. And one of the clips that really made the rounds, went viral, was a young woman, mid-20s, attractive blonde woman in her Steelers shirt, talking about her vote. And she's already voted early. She mailed in her ballot. And she was explaining what she had done. And her explanation in PA was she voted for the Democrat for governor, Shapiro, who's kind of a a fairly, by today's standards, moderate Democrat. She voted for him. And then she voted for Dr. Oz for U.S. Senate because she felt like there's just a lot of extremism out there and Fetterman was just kind of gave her extreme vibes and she didn't like it. And she said a few things that people are kind of making fun of her for, like, oh, I'm pro-choice and that matters to me. But then she voted for Dr. Oz, who's pro-life, and people are like, this, this woman is incoherent. But I actually watched her talking, and I don't know what, you, what your reaction was, but I watched the video and I said, this is how normal people think. We're all a bunch of weirdos around here who analyze this and we have all these you know, super coherent worldviews and that's not how a lot of just sort of normal folks out there approach politics. And actually listening to her, I think was instructive for maybe you know political strategists and campaigns and that kind of thing. And also just very intuitive and normal. Like you could point out where it's inconsistent or it doesn't seem to make sense, or maybe she hasn't, like, you know, filled in all of the details perfectly, but just sort of the vibe that she had, which translated into voting decisions that she made, was actually, it's like you were listening to a mainstream voter think out loud. I found it very interesting. 
I saw that interview. I, I think it's essential for any political reporter to get out and, and talk to voters, talk to swing voters, listen to what they're saying, because that's how you appreciate politics, and that's how you appreciate how campaigns work at a ground level up. And by the way, uh, guys, there's a new ad from Dr. Oz. We're actually spotlighting it in our in our Sunday sneak Axios newsletter, where his latest strategy is to essentially paint John Fetterman, his opponent, as the extreme candidate. And he's the guy who's main, mainstream. So he's basically subtly tying Fetterman in with Mastriano, uh, the, 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 yep. the other Republican run for the we, governor. We played one of those ads in the last hour. Actually, we, we played it here because we were talking about that race. Yeah, it's he's going after Fetterman by name, but he's also sort of distancing himself from someone on his own ticket by implication at the same time, which at least struck me as a pretty savvy, perhaps necessary move, given the dynamics in that state. There will be uh, quite a few voters who vote for Shapiro like that woman did and also vote for Dr. Oz. And, and actually, MSNBC did a focus group this week with a lot of suburban women having real, real reservations about John Fetterman. And and I got to tell you, you've talked about this on the show so much, but the crime issue is the biggest vulnerability, along with the economy for Democrats. But any any race where you have a progressive, you know, criminal justice activist on the ballot, you you see the you see it in Wisconsin with Mandela Barnes, you see it in Pennsylvania with Fetterman, you're seeing it in New York in, in the governor's race with Hochul, you're seeing it in Oregon with Tina Kotek, uh, the, the state legislator. That is a major political penalty you're, you're, you're paying if you're a Democrat. It, it's easy for some Democrats to say, actually, I want to fund the police. But if you're a Democrat like Governor Hochul, who has resisted making changes to the bail law in New York to make it tougher for people from getting released in, in, out of prison for for committing violent crimes. If you're someone like Fetterman, who was as lieutenant governor heading this parole board and has yep. called for essentially letting people serving life sentences get out with being a little more permissive about that, that's going to be tough at a time when crime is, is on the rise. And look, that that is what Oz, the Oz campaign has seen that from the get-go. They've been hearing most of their ads about crime. And yeah, like that is what a lot of these moderate mainstream voters in Pennsylvania are deciding on. They, 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 they may want to vote Democrat, but they also are worried about the safety in their community, and they're worried about the positions that the Democrat, Fetterman, has taken on those issues. Josh, you just invoked a candidate in a big Senate race, and I want to pick up on that. And when we come back, ask you about Wisconsin, some more revelations out of the Badger State. We'll get to that next. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show with Josh Krasauer of Axios. Lastly, since you mentioned him, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, I don't know if you saw some of the old tweets of his that were being circulated by Republicans this week. One where he was sort of praising the Ayatollah in Iran because he had said Black Lives Matter in this obvious stupid pander. And Mandela Barnes, like a useful idiot, was like, oh, this is amazing. What a great way to start the new year. And then he was also praising Cuba and talking like he wanted to move to Cuba at one point. And you look at his record of what he has done and said in the state of Wisconsin. Do you have any idea why it is that the party in that state, his party, decided to clear the field for this guy in the Senate race? It just seems like that was not a great strategic move. It's political malpractice. And I've talked to a lot of Wisconsin Democrats in the last couple of weeks who have started to really regret some of the decisions that, that they made earlier in the year. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the, the DS, the, the National Democratic Party, could have endorsed one of his primary rivals. They could have gotten behind someone else, uh, but they, they didn't. And look, we've talked a lot about some Republican Senate candidates that have, have underperformed, but Barnes and Fetterman. I mean, Barnes is probably the number one seed in that category. He, this is a race that was very winnable for, for Democrats, even in a bad year. And, and Barnes has basically taken it off the board. And Pennsylvania is obviously very close, but, but the trend lines are pretty clear in Pennsylvania as well. Yeah. Uh, these are these are candidates that if Connor Lamb was running in Pennsylvania, uh, I think Democrats would be in much better shape. If, if you had someone like the Bucks, uh, uh, you know, vice president and Alex Lazary running as, as the nominee, they, they would have a chance perhaps to contest that Wisconsin seat with Ron Johnson. But they nominated some of the worst, more, more extreme candidates I've seen in these swing states well, in a, a long time. And, and it's Fetterman, been very, very costly. Fetterman won in a blowout in that primary. And lastly, Josh, I'll just mention this since you're talking about candidate quality, and that's been one of the refrains about Republicans. Blake Masters had a funny little wink about that on Twitter because he's often mentioned as one of the candidate quality problems in that race or out across the country. There was a poll showing that race extremely close, statistically tied, masters perhaps surging and getting toward the finish line. And someone was wondering, how is it that he's this close and could win, even though Mark Kelly's outspent him by a massive margin, like six to one or something like that. And Blake Masters came back and said, well, candidate quality matters, which I thought was not a bad little jab at a couple people out there, uh, which he's at least aware of. A little self-aware tweet there from Blake Masters. Josh Krausauer, we have to leave it there for now. Always appreciate your analysis at Axios and here on the show as well. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Guy. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Earlier in the program, in our first hour, we welcome back Peter Ducey, White House correspondent here at Fox News. A lot to chat about with him as usual. Here's part of that conversation. You have spent quite a bit of time over the last few days pressing the White House on energy costs, and their own words versus what they're trying to say now. And I know Corrine Jean-Pierre was sort of putting on this air of confusion, like whatever are you talking about, but you're just reading the president's quotes back to her, things that he said as the president, things that he said as a candidate, and then the demands that they're making on oil companies now. There seems to be something of a mismatch there rhetorically. Well, it's it, we're kind of at a collision right now. I know President Biden likes to say we're at an inflection point, but I would describe it more as a collision between the long-term goals that he had to establish to survive the Democratic primary two years ago, uh, which was when he said he was going to end fossil fuels, uh, versus these short-term realities of rising gas prices and very limited things he can do to try to address them, like tapping into the reserve. Whether or not that's going to work, it remains to be seen. It hasn't really done the trick uh, in a meaningful way over the last couple months, but it it is just Biden's big picture things meeting the stuff that is on the front pages, and, uh, and that's how we got here, I guess. Yep. I mean, the political rhetoric, the political promises, the ideological project versus current political realities. And they are twisting themselves into pretzels to try to sort of justify things and reconcile things. I'm not really sure how successful they're being. I guess voters will render that verdict in a couple of weeks here. 
you also had an opportunity to actually get a question asked and answered from the president this week about priorities. Talk about that exchange. A completely reasonable question. You look at what the Democrats are spending a lot of money on still abortion, abortion, abortion. Voters are focused on inflation, inflation, inflation. You tried to get him to sort of you know rank some of these concerns, and he responded how? Well, he said that it's kind of an all-of-the-above approach, but the reason that I asked him whether or not the top domestic priority is inflation or abortion is because he has been saying, and, and you know, when I go in there to talk to him or talk to Karine Jean-Pierre, I've got old quotes printed out. To, just in case anybody asks, uh, he said he uh, inflation is his top domestic priority. He said it back in May. But now he's saying if the Democrats keep the Congress, the first bill is going to be to make Roe v. Wade, uh, Roe v. Wade the law of the land. So, like, which is it? Uh, because mm-hmm. all the polls show the people, uh, independents, Republicans, a lot of Democrats are the most worried, like people that are going to go vote. Uh, are the most worried about inflation, the economy, jobs, prices. And now that it's so close and they're trying to make sure that the most motivated Democrats go and vote, uh, abortion is on level footing with inflation, yeah, according I mean, to him. Yeah, according to him. And uh, and according to the party. In fact, they've really been focused on that and a lot of their spending and messaging. And again, it's, you know, we're going to see if that bears fruit or not electorally for them. The president did make a somewhat rare appearance on the campaign trail yesterday in Pennsylvania on behalf of John Fetterman, who is losing momentum in that Senate race, which is now a statistical tie in Pennsylvania. Did you get any sense of, because I know Biden gets defensive of this, like, oh, no, I'm out there campaigning all the time. Uh, He's not, right? It's, It's He has been notably absent especially from important races, because the candidates either explicitly or implicitly have suggested they'd rather not be seen with him. Fetterman decided, you know, even in a state where Biden is not popular, all right, I guess let's bring in the big guy here. Uh, is there any, based on people you're chatting with, uh, with at the White House or political operatives who are explaining why Fetterman and the White House operation felt like this was a good idea for everyone involved? No, but... As you watch the president, you know, there are a lot of – if you read some of the stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post trying to explain away the president's uh, lack of a campaign schedule, they're saying, no, no, no. Uh, it's not that he doesn't have a lot of events. It's that he's going to these places and fundraising, and he's making money for these candidates, whether he appears with them or not. The Pennsylvania appearances are going to become more and more interesting because yesterday, at least for the public part that the press was allowed to go and document, um, the candidate, John Fetterman, never even spoke. President Biden did all the talking Mm -hmm. for both of them. And so that tells me, as somebody who has covered many uh, Biden events but also Pennsylvania midterm events over the years, uh, it's going to be like that. They've decided – they spent – there is so much consultant money in Pennsylvania. And they spend so much money on ads because of the Pittsburgh and Philadelphia media markets and that they they know exactly what works and what doesn't. So some Democratic consultant has decided we don't need John Fetterman to speak for himself. But when Biden comes, it helps a little bit. And so I I think Mm -hmm. that's what we're what we're getting at there. Uh, Maybe. Again, I don't want to make any overly confident predictions about anything because I'm not a fool, but 
I would just say, Peter, speaking for myself, if you are a Democratic consultant and you feel like your best play right now is to have the guy running for Senate not speak for himself very much and instead hand that baton over to Joe Biden in your state where he's underwater by 15 to 20 points, it kind of seems like dire straits. Maybe not, not the position they would hope to be in however many, 18 or so days out from the election. But, you know, maybe they've got some focus groups and some internal polling that suggests it'll be helpful. Uh, And again, you know, we don't have to sit around twiddling our thumbs, wondering about it for all that much longer. Thank God. Voters will actually have their say. People are voting actively already in Pennsylvania, the mail-in ballots, for example. Peter, have you you seen these stories? seems like there's been a little boomlet of them in the last couple days about the role the first lady has been playing in this administration and some of the decisions being made, uh, some of the the messaging and other things, how she's really putting her mark on the presidency. Maybe I'm just sort of like imagining a little trend of these stories, but it seems like they're happening all at once. And I'm I'm trying to make sense of why all of a sudden there are people going, you know, on the record or off the record to talk about Jill Biden at this moment. It seems like she's more welcome on the campaign trail than her husband. That might be part of it. I'm not sure why it's happening now, um, but remember, like, two summers ago at the convention, a big part of the program was uh, that Jill Biden was the ultimate Biden defender. She was the one that was looking out for him, and by by doing that was making sure that all of his policies and his proposals happened, um, and we just didn't see a lot of that uh, – The that narrative or that storyline surrounding her um, until now. So they bring it out right before elections and right before they, they are trying to get people excited, whether or not, I, you know, I, I don't have a ton of experience dealing directly with the first lady. Um, I've seen these stories, but the, the number one commonality I would say is that whether it's at a convention or right before a midterm election, they, they want to make it known that, it's not just by Joe Biden you're voting for. It's her, too. And she'll make sure that stuff happens. My full interview with Peter Ducey, White House correspondent here at Fox News, available at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on the free podcast, the whole show, every day on demand for free. Plus bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, a member of the team here is hopping mad about something. And it isn't even Christine. Details straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. That's the website. Podcast free every day on demand, including bonus Benson on the weekends. If you're listening on the broadcast... The bumper song that we just came in with is new from Taylor Swift. Midnight's, I think, is the name of the album. Came out last night at midnight, I think. And I see all the Swifties in my social media feeds losing their minds over it. So we had a bit of a drive earlier today, Adam and I. So we put on the album and listened to it. And eh, that's sort of my reaction. Sorry. I know the Swift fans are going to be mad at me, and boy, do they get mad sometimes. You criticize the queen of their beehive, and they just go crazy. You criticize Tay, and uh, they get 
a bit irked. I don't dislike the whole album. In fact, the song that we just played, I think, is called Antihero. That was probably my favorite one of the bunch. Good chorus, catchy. The rest of them just weren't catchy. Maybe the lyrics are good and meaningful and everyone's, like, crying about how beautiful or whatever. Most of the songs sounded almost exactly the same to me. Similar vibe. Perfectly pleasant in the background, but not like a banger that I want to sing along to. And the Swift stuff that I like the most falls into that category. Like, I think her all-time best song is Trouble. I love that song. And nothing comes close on this album to that. In my opinion, maybe you love the record. Again, Antihero I thought was fine. There was another one called Karma that I kind of liked. But overall, it's sort of like a, a shrug for me. It's fine. Christine, have you heard any of it? I actually have, and I just want to put it out there to the audience. Any and all hate uh, directed at Guy, please go to Guy P. Benson at Twitter, not Cookies Jar 1988. I am a fan of Taylor Swift, always have been, always will be, and she could do no wrong. So you're loving the album is what you're saying? I just don't want the hate. <laughs> I'm oh, just starting out on Twitter. All right, so that's uh, <laughs> very, very... Courageous of you, right? There's a real profile and courage there, saying, please don't hate me. No comment on the album. Dan, you're a music guy. Any thoughts? Um, I kind of like it. It's it's not my thing. It has a lot of Haim vibes, that band, The Three Sisters, um, a lot of like harmonies and things like that. But the whole album together kind of has one sound. It's just like a vibey sound. Yeah, it's like a vibey droning. sound. Yeah. It's fine. Like it's To me, it's fine. So the reason that I was in the car for a while with the opportunity to listen to the music is because we were driving to Rehoboth Beach, which is where the president has arrived for the weekend. He loves spending his time out here. He spends an awful lot of it out here. I saw a report, was it one out of every four days, more than one in four days of his presidency he has spent in Delaware? And he's got a beach house or two right around here, I think. And I did the most Biden thing ever. I took the train to Delaware and then Adam picked me up. And the good news was the train was totally on time, very efficient, got there actually faster than I was expecting. And this was rather different, apparently, than the experience Quiet Wyatt has been having on the rails recently. And in our planning call meeting earlier, Christine was begging us not to do yet another home stretch about her drinking. And so Wyatt then chimed in and started complaining about how his train schedule recently has been pretty ugly and not terribly punctual. And Wyatt kind of wanted a platform to go off, and he rarely goes off at all. So we figured we would give him an opportunity. When Quiet Wyatt really wants to speak up about something, we listen. So Wyatt, in a nutshell, why are you so annoyed? It has been not Fun these past few days of traveling, um, coming back from from DC. We're going to D. Uh, coming from DC to New York last week when we were all together last Friday. My train was delayed on Amtrak for over three and a half hours, Oof. and that was where it just started. And then uh, next well, last week when, when I was in New York and going back from New Jersey into New York, my New Jersey Transit train got stuck on the on the rails and we had to evacuate the train and get onto another one. I literally had to get off the train and hop on to the other side of the tracks to another train and that took about an hour and a half extra for everyone on the train to get onto the train that was working. And then last night I had about another forty five minute delay out of New York to come back to DC. So it is not 
been very fun. Huh. Now, the one that was delayed three and a half hours, like, that's the length of the whole ride, basically. I feel like they should owe you something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I came this close to tweeting. I know a lot of people, whenever they have travel problems, <laughs> they like to tweet it out. And I try and keep my social media feeds very, you know, neutral and not. But I, I mean, I was very close to going off on, on Twitter, but I, I kept my composure and I decided not to do that. But I sent a pretty nasty email to the oh. customer service line. Oh, because, boy. I mean, I, when when you're delayed that long and it screws up your whole night, I, you know, had a vent somewhere. Oh, yeah. You don't want to mess with War Wyatt. And it sounds like you were on the war path. Was it very sternly warded? I bet you it was actually very polite. And you said something like, I am deeply chagrined by this situation. Please rectify. Thank you and good day. And then you sent it with, like, you know, a, a satisfied look on your face. That's going to get him. No, I mean, it was. I was pretty <laughs> mad. Like, I, I, I'm not I, – this whole summer, when I was going home back and forth from D.C. to Jersey for the summer to go to the beach, every time, uh, I mean, the late night trains back into Jersey was always an hour delay. So I, this has been a trend, and you and I just was, was, was not having it last, last Friday. You know, Wyatt, maybe in the future you should not take the train, and instead you should take... The wheels on the bus go... That's just not going to get old, I don't think. We've played it several times. The context, if you're missing it, as we mentioned previously, Kamala Harris was asked about the Inflation Reduction Act and what her favorite part was. And it took her a while to think of something. She just loved it. Of course, she can't say the reduction of inflation is her favorite part because there really is none in the bill. But she said electric school buses. She's very passionate and excited about electric school buses. And then she laughed, of course, because that's what she does. And then we uh, whipped that up real quick. Christine, have you ever seen or witnessed Wyatt angry like this? No, I'm I'm pretty impressed. I would like to see the uh, email. But so do I. I'm I actually curious. I kind of feel like he's been around me long enough that he would know how to go Jersey on someone if he really. What would what would my email? You did his email. What would my email to uh, the you, uh, Amtrak people be? Do you know how to use email though? Oh my gosh! I feel like you would handwrite just... a letter in cursive and send it and send it out and just like try to like put some breadcrumbs on the ground so a pigeon might come and pick up the letter <laughs> and send it somewhere and flap off away and deliver it to the right spot. That's your primary means of communication. Um, you understand I'm your producer, right? I also like, I'm your think executive producer. You are. That is, <laughs> that is what you do. That's the title here. I feel like you might not send an email. I feel like you would have gone straight to someone oh, yeah. and started sort of badgering them. The other thing is you would not send an email. You would send <laughs> a dozen emails until you sort of broke them. You would email and call and harass them into submission, and they would give you something. They probably wouldn't give you a free ticket or a refund, but they might give you, like, a $10 coupon, like a voucher for the cafe car, which does include a bar, by the way. So that might be enough. That might be satisfactory. See, we've brought it back to your drinking anyway. Was able to just work it in at the very, very end because we are up 
on a break, the last break of the week. Back here on Monday for the Guy Benson Show from D.C. next week. Looking forward to being home. In the meantime, though, have a great weekend. Check out Bonus Benson, and we will talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.